six seven eight. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Visitors Might Be Listening, a podcast hosted by me, Lewis Ryan, where we talk about lots of things, science fiction and stuff. And we're nearing the end, tragically, of our discussion of the Planet of the Apes films. Unfortunately, there aren't a million of these things to go over. There's only uh, less than ten. So we're nearing the end, and we're in for a real treat today because we're discussing 2014's dawn of the planet of the apes i was about to say war but uh it's dawn of the planet of the apes um and i'm joined as always we've managed to do it eight times in a row um have all of my co-hosts here um i'm glad you guys are here you guys know him mr mike levito is the first one mike how are you doing today i am doing well i am still recovering from the uh opening scenes of this movie which given recent events gave me a panic attack but we'll uh, we'll dive into that later I, I was wondering if um, thinking of this film had like this big stock footage opening, but I think that might be World War Z. It has like the big uh, new they edit in like Obama talking and stuff. Um, they they keep it pretty light here. Um, but my other co-host, uh, there's, there's a lot of world leaders in this one. Yeah, they got Obama, they got Bloomberg, they got a lot of that. Okay, all right, <laughs> lots of star power here. My other co-host just jumped in already, Mr. Chris Chobin. Chris, how are you doing today? doing well i also had a big reaction to sort of the the opening scenes but it was more of a huh they just like they really captured the fear but not the boredom right yeah well you guys both had big reactions you should both get tested (laughs) for the simian flu insert (laughs) rim shot noise here that's for me (laughs) yeah so it's an exciting one today guys um i'm really excited to talk about it but first i have uh, my icebreaker question that I spend weeks and weeks thinking of questions to ask just to break the ice because, you know, we, we don't talk or get along really outside of these, these <laughs> recordings, so I need to think of something to sort of, you know, break the ice, uh, warm us up a little. As we're nearing the end, you know, we're running out of Planet of the Apes films to talk about, and um, uh, Disney is the new owner of the, the series, and they're releasing their new film, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, sometime next year. So I thought it might be interesting to ask you guys, given the bevy of... Uh, really good actors in this film and then in the previous films like who's an actor who hasn't been in the series that you might be excited to see in in a future movie because none of the cast i believe has been announced for kingdom who's someone you'd be excited to see man or woman but they can't have been someone who you know has been in the series already so that means charlton heston is ineligible (laughs) just to be clear does, does either of you have a choice? Mike, you look like you want to say something. So yeah, I, I was thinking about this, and one place in my mind, actually, the first place it went to was two people, and it was actually Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, um, mm-hmm. because I think that they could play either the apes or, like, non-apes. Like, I, I feel like, and probably they'd probably more be more suited to, you know, doing, like, the 70s-style, like, big costume and makeup apes than they would be like the Andy Serkis mocap one. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you could see one as like either as like kind of a Dr. Zayas figure or something like that. Or you could see them as, as maybe like kind of like a human leader um, who wants to do something, you know, either destroy or, or, or um, you know, bargain with the apes. The other the other name I came to, and maybe it's just because it's, it's this podcast, but I was thinking of it's like, if you need someone in the Charlton Heston role, like, why not go with Joel Kinnaman? of uh for all mankind fame he's already he's already played an astronaut and um he has the kind of sort of like stern rugged thing that that heston go had going for him as well 
tragically, they can't bring the couple back together because uh, his wife's already in this movie. Who's Joel Kinnaman married to? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, in in the... Uh, wait, no. Am I mixing my... Sorry. One second. I don't believe anyone from For All Mankind has been in a planet. I'm, I'm, sorry, apologies. I'm mixing my All Mankinds with my... Um, uh, the not the Smiths, the Americans. Sorry. Yeah, Carrie Russell. Yes, of course. With American Sam is in this movie. Yeah, which I I forgot completely forgotten about. Which it and it really is. I that I think she's an incredible actor. I think she does a a decent amount with what she's given, but like she, it's sort of a weird role where she doesn't show that much emotion, which is I don't know. It's a little weird because that's usually what such she's. And every other role she's been in, she's such good at, like, giving simmering tension to even, like, sort of side stuff. That is true. But but who would be a, um, who, who would you cast, though? <laughs> that is the question. So, uh, <laughs> sorry. That either uh, Diego Luna, I think, would do an interesting job being, like, like sort of, like, scrappily put between the two and has to figure something out for the sake of his family uh, or a Matthew Rise that like uh, to speak to the Americans I think I was that's why my, my head went there um, that he seems like he could pull off what the, the actor in this movie does which is just like immediately being like weirdly fascinated with the apes and like vibing with them uh, I think he might be able to pull that off I knew Chris was going to pick somebody from Andor I just <laughs> To be fair, we, Andy Serkis I was gonna say, is yeah. an Andor. <laughs> we, we already know we can act against him. I'm just like, I can't believe Chris would go such a pedestrian populist route. Anyways, <laughs> I would pick um, either Baby Yoda or <laughs> Babu Frick. Who would I pick? I don't know. I was interested to see who you guys would pick. I don't know. Adam Driver is a mm. big one. Ooh. Yeah, he's, you know, I really like him. He's a talented actor. And do we do he, we know they're going the classic like space uh, space route? I don't know. Disney has stopped looping me in on the email, so I really don't know. <laughs> I, look, I, <laughs> I, I I'm just I'm sorry. I'm just you know being humorous for anyone uh, listening. Geez. I know no one is, but I I don't know. All I know is the title. I don't believe anything else has been revealed. Like I don't. Kingdom. I'm pretty sure Andy Serkis is not going to be. I that that's my hope. I was going to maybe do predictions in the next episode, but. My hope was that we'd eventually get to something like the first movie where it's apes actually living in like a village and they wear clothes and start talking in full sentences. So then we could get Patrick Stewart or Ian McKellen. Yeah. Or... I, 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 oh, sorry, no, I was going to say, actually looking at they have announced actually a cast or some members oh, of the cast. Um, the only name I recognize, though, from this whole list is William H. Macy. And you I don't know. know. I was... I was thinking William H. Macy before we recorded this, so that's funny that... <laughs> so you actually have been on the Disney you have them cast. <laughs> oh, no, uh, uh, the, the the woman from Lost is also in there. Uh, oh, no. Evangeline Lilly? Uh, no, Duchin Lachman. No, maybe I'm mixing my Asian actresses, sorry. Wow. No, she's the, she's the one from uh, Severance. Adam Scott. Apes everywhere? Um... <laughs> Adam Driver would be good though, because he's in that um, that '65 movie, right? Which is kind of like a similar. Isn't he also an astronaut who like falls to Earth and has to fight dinosaurs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's trapped in the past to yeah. save her do- his daughter. Oh, right, she was on Dollhouse too. That was a good show. Yeah, so let's talk about the movie today. 
Um, I, I have some personal backstory about this movie, but I, I don't know. Do, do you guys have anything to say about what, if you saw it in the uh, original release? I did see it in theaters, and I can't remember. Did I see it with you, Lewis? No. Okay, then I saw it with my friend Joe. Um, I saw it in theaters, and we can... I don't know. We, we can talk. I, I guess what I just say is that, like, I, I remember being the subject of, like, really kind of, like, heated discourse, whereas, like, I feel like a lot of people were expecting these movies to be bad when they first came out. And then this one, which I would say is actually very, very good, came out. And I think that there was just, like, I just remember, like, listening to, like, film podcasts and, and there being people, like, arguing about, like, the, the merit of these movies. And I think at the time, I just kind of, like, didn't really think a lot of it. I was like, yeah, this is fine, whatever. I had a nice time with the movies, but didn't think about it much afterwards. Mm. But watching it again, I'm like, no, this is actually, I think, you could argue, one of the greatest sci-fi blockbusters of the 2010s. And we can talk about why later, but, but that's that's my headline. I think that's really interesting. I, I'd never seen it before. I think a part that I sort of went down that route of, like, I think I can remember watching the first one of these with my parents and running into the same blocker I did last time that, like, he, what's-his-face was so bad that I was just turned off by the time the movie got good um, and so just didn't follow up the rest of the series. So this was really good to watch. Um, it was incredible uh, in terms of... And it really helps when you start with the apes uh, and that you, you sort of put your best foot forward and you got, you got the circus on display. Um, uh, circus yeah, is yeah. in town. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lewis, you had, a, you had a story? I did not see this movie with Mike when it originally came out, but oddly enough, I did see it with my friend Joe, oh. who is my father. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know if Mike and I are talking about the same person. We were just sitting on either side of him. We had no idea. <laughs> the, uh, the usher was like looking at us with a flashlight, super confused. Yeah. Um, but this was, this was the first Planet of the Apes movie I ever saw in the theater. I... I don't remember like why exactly I saw it. I knew that Rise had been like well received, somewhat surprisingly, given the state of reboots and stuff that we talked about last episode. I knew it was well received. I think a lot of people heard end up hearing about like the no scene from the mm-hmm. last movie, which was really you know iconic and memorable. And I feel like we didn't really talk about it that much, but it is like a really good scene. It's probably the most well known scene from these three movies, and that it sort of permeated the culture a little bit. I think. So, and then this movie was coming out, and I'm not sure exactly why we ended up seeing it. Maybe it had something to do with the poster, because the poster is uh, one of the apes, like, holding guns in both hands, riding a horse, which I think is a really good movie poster, really strong image to get people to see a movie. It's like, oh, wow, that looks get cool. That, get asses so, um, in seats. Yeah, exactly. And so I ended up seeing it, and then I was blown away by this movie. It is so good um, that it defies description, which makes this really hard to do a podcast about. But we're going to try, darn it. So I, I think it's fair to say we, we all liked the movie, right? Does, any, yeah. does anyone think this is you know less than a four-star movie here? I, th- I think that right. might be does the anyone... difference between you and I. Is that like uh, I think y'all have said it. I don't know. Some of those scenes are really good. I feel like I'm a four and a half. Like, I, I don't know if it was like incredible. But that just, uh, I don't know. I'm, we'll, let's go through the movie. I'll, I'll, I'll process as need be. All right, yeah. No, I'm excited to hear, because Chris is the person who has not seen this before, so it'll be interesting to hear his unique uh, virginal stance on the <laughs> film. Uh, so where should we start? Um, I, think, I think an interesting place to start might be in comparing this to the last one. I think this film has a really 
in addition to both the ape characters being really well developed i think this film really succeeds because it has really strong human characters and i think that has to do with the cast um did, did you guys think that the human uh, cast was stronger than the last movie? I did. I, I do think there were some moments where it, it felt like they they didn't really follow up enough on certain relationships, I think specifically between Carrie Russell and uh, a, a young Cody Smith McPhee. You know, it, she's more or less his stepmother, like, you know, because his mother died in the, in, in the plague, and, and but his father, he and his father survived, and then her family died in the plague or whatever. Um, and and they, they kind of make that a big thing where it's like oh you know they uh, you know he's she's trying to connect with him and, and all this stuff but you know I, I do think that I, yes I would agree and I think you know Jason Clark is a really interesting kind of like um, go between between the apes and the um, the humans and, and and this this man sort of caught in the middle um, someone who does desperately want peace and who finds himself like just a man of two worlds basically. Um, as opposed to somebody who's just kind of there to watch, watch the rise. Like it feels like James Franco was in, in at some points in, in the prior movie. I truly like. It, it felt like, even though we watched James Franco raise Caesar, that like, uh, that Jason Clark had like a. You immediately saw in his eyes that he was just like in awe of these apes. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, he doesn't need to have, like, a big ape backstory. He's just like, these are fucking talking apes. Like, how cool is that? Like, just to immediately have that be his, like, that's why he's going to be so pro-ape. And then also to just be a good family man, trying to make peace happen, trying to maintain peace. And then, like, a, basically immediately have a great rapport with Caesar in a way that's really interesting. That, that makes it so that even though they don't have that many... I mean, they have solid scenes together, but, like... Um, that because you immediately have that good feeling, it makes everything else go down smoother. Yeah, I think Jason Clark is really interesting in this movie. I think he's really a really interesting actor, um, just because like he's I mean, he's essentially like the human lead in a way, but he's not like a big star in any way. And I would even say like in terms of movie stars, he kind of just looks like a regular guy. Yeah. Like he could be on the podcast with us right now, <laughs> and. <laughs> Maybe that says more about how handsome we are. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, but uh, did anyone watch the show he was on, Brotherhood? He's he's really good on that show. I didn't, but but I read about it after this. I was like, oh, that actually sounds interesting. Where he, he plays, uh, is he the polit is he the politician or is he the yeah? Character? He's like the brother is like the politician. It's sort of a Whitey Bulger analog sort of thing where yeah. it's like his brother's in the mob and his other brother is a politician on the hill. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing I was going to mention, and I'm pretty sure I've mentioned to you a couple times mike is that he plays ted kennedy in the film uh chappaquiddick that's it yeah he's really good in that yeah it's that's a really good film um that i think i think mike would like uh if he hasn't seen it yet um, and there's no excuse not to with um google being able to tell you how to spell chappaquiddick correctly. <laughs> you can watch it anytime he's just really good and compelling for whatever reason that because maybe it's like he's like he reminds me of like one of those like seventies actors where it's like he just looks like a guy and he's got like the acting chops to back it up instead of just like he looks like a guy from the uh, CW factory. And it's just like <laughs> let's put him. You will be cast as a nuclear physicist. <laughs> well, that's kind of what what stands out to me about the cast in this movie, the human cast in particular, because it's yeah. like in the first movie it's like it's stars, right? Or at least people that Pog was trying to turn into stars, right? 
it's James Franco. Um, it's Frida Pinto is obviously a very attractive person. Right. Yeah. Both of them are. And then you have John Lithgow, who's like a big name. Um, you know, Brian Cox, we talked about maybe not as big a name as he is now, but like, you know, had been around. You, you freaking Draco Malfoy's well, in it, right? Yeah, Draco Malfoy. Um, but, but in this movie, it really feels like outside of Gary Oldman, it's really just kind of like, it, I feel like they're like TV actors. Well, yeah, that, that's I, I loved seeing uh, Kirk uh, as uh, Acevedo. Kirk, yeah, Kirk Acevedo. Uh, I like that. He's he's so good on Band of Brothers that I was just excited to see him. And he was truly such a, such a good shithead. Like, that like usually the person playing that role is like hamming it up too much uh but like he just eases into being a racist in a way that's like really good yeah and, and just like this um yes i i would agree but like and, and to me that that kind of casting almost harkens back to the original films in a way where outside of charlton heston you know it wasn't like the stars of the time necessarily it was more just you know kind of working actors and, and people like that yeah no and they're all they're all good so should we should we talk about the plot and the uncomfortable similarities to what has gone on the last few years? Do you guys have anything to add on on that front? Yeah. So j- just just to flesh it out more, we we kind of joked about it at the beginning, but the opening scene is this like it's it's an image of the globe, and you have these kinds of red vectors going out, and they're all originating in I guess in San Francisco, and and they're going different parts of the globe, and as it happens, you know you get these kinds of mock newscasts spliced together with stock footage about the simian flu, which was, you know, generated from the drug that James Franco develops in the, in the, in the prior film that's killing, like, I think they said, like, the survivor is, like, 1 in 500 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, like, little, like, like, video of Michael Bloomberg saying, like, if you have a scratchy throat, stay inside. <laughs> and, um, and, you, and right after that, you have, like, a, the voice of, like, a man going like, I bet it was built in a lab. And it's just like, <laughs> oh man, like this is like too reminiscent of COVID for me right now. It was actually really like scary, but but it was actually also like really well done. And what I think, what I really enjoy about the way the plot kicks off is that it's the humans that destroy themselves, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't a thing where like the apes, you know, kind of gain sentience or whatever, and then they set out to conquer the humans. It is societal collapse caused by human greed and kind of this Promethean goal to essentially fight biology leads to humanity's downfall. And they just happen to intersect with the apes eventually. Harkening back to the original series where like nuclear war was the sort of pandemic of their time in terms of being like, this is the biggest thing that's going to destroy us. Like um, this is the actual thing that might happen uh, barring anything going on in Ukraine. But like that, yeah, it's just, it's, it's taking and truly updating it as opposed to trying to fit into the corner edges. That's really good. I feel like it unintentionally adds, with the recent events have unintentionally added more dimension to Kirk Acevedo's character in the way mm-hmm. it's just like, he's sort of deflecting that humanity had any responsibility and it's like, just blame the apes. They're the scapegoats. They're the scape apes. And you could, I could totally uh, see, uh, I can imagine uh, a, a, a recent politician <laughs> That might go on and be like, it was the apes. They were all bad, crawling around, moving from branch to branch. The apes, everybody. You know, I could imagine it. Yeah. Um, and he would probably agree to be in the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it is, 
ahead of its time, I guess. And I think I think I was thinking of this. Uh, did anyone watch The Last of Us? Because this reminds me a bit of the uh, The Last of Us. This film. Did you? Did anyone else think of that when they were watching it? Totally, especially the um, the cityscape. I thought they did a really good job with that. Um, uh, that it's uh, it's it's weirdly a little more hopeful than The Last of Us. I guess like the the the, the beginning parts. I guess the totality of it is more Last of Us ish. Yeah, that I, I thought it was very reminiscent of really putting you into a space of post-apocalypse that is realistic. Yeah, in that same way Last of Us does. Yeah, now that you mention it, this might be this might be the most hopeful of any of the Planet of the Apes movies when you think about it, because they're usually really depressing <laughs> when yeah. they get to it, the end. It is, but it's also. I think in a lot of ways it's almost, and we can talk about this more as we when we talk about the end. But I do feel like in a lot of ways it's kind of about the inevitability of conflict and how at some point, sort of intention and reason for conflict almost becomes irrelevant, and it just becomes about winning and about exacting revenge. So, but that's interesting that you had an optimistic read of it because I, I guess there is there is in many ways it does end with Caesar, you know, calling Jason Clark his friend. But again, we we can get all to that later. But but only but only after admitting to him that like I can't I can't stop this war exactly. I can't stop this war yeah yeah right yeah speaking of um, you guys are political wonks so I think you guys know about like stuff like realpolitik and whatnot mm-hmm. and I think that has some some bearing on this and why I enjoyed oh, the film so much yeah because like the whole film it's not really a bunch of action mm-hmm. in the first half like at all. It's really like establishing relations and so forth, almost like between two nations or city-states, and they're like negotiating, and it's like being careful about manners and stuff and whatnot that I found really mm. interesting and compelling. Truly, it feels like the first time Caesar... I understand how Caesar controls the apes. Like, that he is such a good politician in this movie. Like, that he... You can see him show force and show dominance, but also be reasonable and then like to forgive him when the when he calls to be forgived and then seek justice when justice needs to be sought that like i yeah i like i thought they really earned the sort of ending on that sort of side of things i would agree yeah it's it's a movie about like negotiation and diplomacy and i think also what happens when negotiation and diplomacy fail and why Mm -hmm. they fail and i think a big a big um you mentioned it's not really an action movie and what i do think stands out about the action is that like the violence in this movie is like it's like heavy in a way right like the first gunshot we hear echoes throughout the forest and it catches everybody's attention right and then when we do get to the more of the action scenes later it's like the action isn't thrilling like it's terrifying it's horrifying Mm -hmm. um it's really just like nasty brutal stuff and you're seeing the worst side of both man and ape and that's i think what sets it apart from just like a lot of movies in general, especially movies based on, you know, 50-year-old IP that the studio wanted to dredge up to make some extra money. The triumph is the ending of the violence as opposed to being amidst the violence. Yeah, and I, I think this film does a great job of showing that. And I think what's even more impressive is that this film, especially if you're going into it without having seen maybe the previous entry, the film does such an amazing job establishing the whole, like, ape world within the first few minutes. And, like, you have an understanding of, like, you know, the setting, like their, their huts or whatever, where it is, you know, Caesar is their leader. You see how he like controls and rules. You get like sort of an understanding of how they operate the community. We sort of get the, um, uh, 
they show it. It's written on the wall, but they establish, you know, the um, uh, ape does not kill, kill ape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They all work together for the common good, like Smurfs. Um, <laughs> what? So I, I actually have a kind of a bizarre question for both of you. Um, when did the ape dialogue start when you were watching this? When did the when did the subtitles first show up? I had to put them on. Uh, like I, I didn't like I didn't think that they were gonna keep doing it. I, I was like I thought oh this would just be like the first few scenes and then they'll like switch to English or something. And so it wasn't until uh, they were having a really nuanced conversation uh, where he was talking about the humans with uh, the giant orangutan that I was like oh shit I should turn on the subtitles <laughs> so I know what's happening. Um, but that e- even without the subtitles on I kind of got the gist that like I immediately knew. The blue eyes was his son, uh, and that like they were having trouble with the the hunt and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, that it was it, it just is such a triumph of the actors and the mocap and the apes that like I didn't even think to turn on the subtitles until like oh shit I'm definitely missing something. Yeah, I was gonna say pretty much the same thing because I am like I currently live with somebody like who needs like subtitles to help them watch TV, and um, so the subtitles were on already. Usually if it's just me, I turn them off. And so I turned them off because it was just like, oh, like leaves rustling, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, the subtitles will come back on when the apes start talking, right? Because remember that from the first movie. And they just didn't. So I was like, oh, I have to put these actually on. And like, it was fine. But like, but, but to your point, I remember we were talking um, at some point, Lewis, about, and I, I think this is a thing that's like just commonly spoken about in like filmmaking circles is, you know, like the sign of like a well-made movie, a well-made sequence is that you can mute it and you can still understand what's going on. And even though that there's sound in these scenes, you know, for the first however many minutes, like, there's no dialogue. And you can still really tell what's going on, even if, if, if you're not kind of involved in, like, a conversation. So, yeah, I would agree. I think really, really well rendered. But, yeah, no, no, this, this film is very strong. And it's very, you know, smartly done the way, you know, it incorporates sign language. It's asking, you know, a lot of the audience to, you know, read pretty much right from the get-go. And, like, the apes do talk. But, you know, it's always sort of um, at deliberate moments that they talk. And the film relies a lot more on, like, gesture and the sign language with the subtitles to, you know, really convey. Um, Lewis, going back to your idea of the realpolitik is when do they speak English? When do they use words? Is when either uh, they need to command all the apes because all the apes still respect English as this, like, magical power, basically. And when they're talking to the humans where they have to. Uh, and that I, I really love how labored the language is. That that's, uh, that really makes it stick for me. And, um, yeah, they, they manage very quickly to establish a whole bunch of characters in the ape world. Um, like, uh, well, I mean, Caesar, obviously. Blue Eyes, his son. Uh, Koba, um, you know, is very fleshed out in this film. Maurice is very fleshed out in this film. You really get a strong sense of these characters. And I want to stress, like, I did not see the previous movie when i first saw it and this film does a tremendous job just getting it all out of the way right off the bat that where it's like you're hooked in that 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 is something even though i had seen the previous movie but watching this ground that's something i i noticed was that like well you really don't have to watch the previous movie to understand what's going on um and i don't think that's the case with a lot of like like the cinematic universes and stuff it's like it's the case with some of those movies but it's like you know you can't watch Avengers Endgame and really understand what's going on without watching Infinity War, right? Like, I think, like, movies have become so dependent on, like, one another and basically becoming trailers and and epilogues to one another 
that like seeing something that yeah it continues the story but is so well contained otherwise is just something I feel like we don't get a lot of anymore at least not with like big budget stuff yeah it's like you saw Guardians 3 without watching the Guardians holiday special <laughs> weirdo yeah I, di- I didn't know why the dog was able to talk well the, <laughs> that's not something that's in the holiday special apparently oh okay um, but like there is some things that happen like uh, I, I went to see it at Guardians 3, this is a tangent, but at Alamo Drafthouse where they recap everything so like they recap the holiday special it's like, oh, okay, great, this is the world we live in now, where um, <laughs> everything has a previously on but like, I, 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 I will defend that movie and uh, Into the Spider-Verse, that I think both of those are similar to this, that like if you have watched the prior film, you are in a better space to watch them, but they are good enough at setting the tone of everything that's happening that you can figure it out like that, uh, it, Guardians Three. If you watch that like beginning scene and like didn't know the characters, like you're getting a gist of each of them pretty quickly. And I, I guess the one thing you'd have to figure out is like the whole he was in love with the previous version of what's her face. Um, but I don't know. They they really delve into that enough that you're like, oh shit, I guess I get it. I, I was gonna say I don't want to turn this into the Guardians episode, but like I, I did really enjoy the Guardians Three. But but no, but like and and I think but you, and I was gonna mention the whole Gamora thing where it's like. If you only watched the three Guardians of the Galaxy movie, you would have no idea that like Gomorra died and then kind of came back. Like mm-hmm. you would have no yeah. idea. Like that would like. And I saw all of these movies and I still really didn't understand what was going on. Like I, I, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. I just completely forgot about it. Yeah, yeah. You, you there know? was other. There was other more important characters dying. That right. Just kind of forgot that one of them was her. But to bring it back around, like that's what I think is so impressive about this movie is oh. that you know, all of those. It's just the way it's packaged and presented, you really don't have to worry about, you know, um, as you said, Lewis, like, even if you see it without seeing Rise of the Planet of the Apes, um, you're, you're really not missing out on too much. Yeah. Well, I think it's a plus um, with this franchise in that it's sort of, it's been successful without, like, exploding in the sense that there's not, like, a overabundance of, like, ancillary material now. Like, there's no TV show, animated series breakfast cereal video games you know it's like play the video game where caesar speaks at the un um (laughs) it's been it's been successful while being very manageable like it's three very distinct films that go in a distinct linear order which i think uh, it helps uh, compared to the mcu which has grown so much that like we're talking about the guardians films now imagine like uh, a 13 year old 10 years from now and it's like oh the Guardians films and they just watch Guardians 1, 2, and 3 it's like uh, no you idiot you're supposed to look up the release order and watch Infinity War here the special there and it's like it's probably going to be really confusing 10 years down the line if you're that 13 year old whereas with this admittedly the titles can be a bit confusing that's what everyone makes fun of with these but um, it's pretty easy just to manage 3 films as opposed to 28 <laughs> yeah yeah so well, let, let's talk about koba uh our antagonist and why he's great <laughs> toby toby kevel is uh amazing at his job he's just as good as andy circus i say you know every every film like this you need a really strong antagonist that's the make of one of these big blockbuster films is having a good antagonist like a a hans gruber if you will um really anchors the film so yeah. i think koba's great um, I'm sure you guys can explain why in intelligent ways. So, I I love that he is genuine genuine loyalty for Caesar at the beginning. He has 
he is caught between his loyalty to this uh, ape that saved his life and his absolute hatred and total distrust of the humans. And it's it's only slowly over the course of the film that he is like, in his eyes, like forced to betray him. I thought that was really good, and it's it's a testament to his acting and the work that they give to him. Yeah, I don't have much else to add. I think that pretty much does it. I, th- I think he's great. And, and just, like, just really scary. I mean, like, obviously they make him look scary. He's got, like, the messed up eye, and, and he's all these scars and stuff. But it's, like, the scene where he... It's, like, the, the, the second time he goes back to the, like, yeah. arsenal or whatever. And it's, like, you know he's, like, there to, like, fuck him up or whatever. And it's, like, he's acting all friendly at first. And even then, just, like, the whole thing, too, where it's, like again talking about kind of like how how well it does kind of without words it's like there's dialogue in those scenes between the two guys at the arsenal but it's like being able to convey that like oh he's acting like the dumb monkey so that they mm-hmm. leave him alone slash he can gain his trust but actually he's still harboring all this hate in his heart you really like mm-hmm. Kobe doesn't say any of that you just kind of see that through his actions it's really well done but when he like guns him down and like the shot of his face after he does it it's chilling like it's really yeah. like it's really chilling yeah. it's it's, it's one of the scariest frames I've seen in a while. And they, they I, wait for, oh sorry, they wait for a second between the first guy and the second guy, and he pleads for his life, and they then he guns him down. I was like, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. I, I have like a distinct memory of watching that in the theater, and it's just like it's just like a similar thing of like you can just like feel the tension, like from the audience and the way it's just like hooked, and it's like you don't that doesn't happen often, but it's like I remember seeing it. I'm like that's a that's a great movie moment right there. Um, it's just so well done. But what I what I like about that scene and like um, Chris was talking about like how you know he starts off he's very loyal to Caesar. What makes Koba great is like he has depth like that. Like you know every great character is like a contradiction. Like he's very loyal to Caesar, but at the same time it's like he he's like I could lead better, and it's like we need to attack the humans, and he's not quite understanding from Caesar's point of view. It's like well I'd rather apes not die, but then like the stuff with him being like this playful uh, ape with the humans in San Francisco. It's like, you can imagine like this whole backstory of him, like before he was in the laboratory or whatever, maybe he was like a performing ape or something, the way he's just able to just turn it on like that. And it's just like, it like fully fleshes him out as a character. He's just not like, despite the fact that Mike said he looks like a movie monster, um, (laughs) you get the idea of like this three dimensional character who is a chimpanzee. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And who doesn't even speak in complete sentences most of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, and and the, the, the scene where Caesar casually says, let the humans do their work, and then he just points at every one of his scars and says human work, like, and just slowly builds the tension of that moment. You're like, oh, shit, like, this is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's also just kind of like, you were talking about, like, realpolitik and this kind of, this is like a, a movie where it's like, Part of me may think of kind of like, you know, like a state of nature type thing, right? It's like kind of, you know, reduced to kind of the social contract has evaporated because society's evaporated. But like also like Koei just made me think of, you know, like any number of strongman leaders, you know, going back to like even like Napoleon or like or like the actual Julius Caesar and this kind of idea that he has to almost destroy what Caesar built so he can actually save it. And there's just something about this movie, too, where like there's like a literal like we talked about like the um obviously there's there's a pandemic then there's like a literal false flag like a literal like like koba like pretend like you know like engineers this kind of make to make it look like caesar was shot by the humans and then spurs them on to war 
Like, there's just something, like, um, re- and maybe because I was only 20 when I saw it back then, but, like, it just resonates well with, I think, our current political moment more than it did back then. Uh, in addition to all this real politics, like, on a base level, this film is about the humans want to re-engineer this dam to get power back. And I think one of the most moving scenes, actually, is when the power does come back. You have this little mm-hmm. moment with Gary Oldman. And I think it really... It's like more than any other film I can think of. It actually truly kind of emphasizes the role that these sorts of devices actually play in our lives. Because like a lot of these films, um, a lot of people have been talking recently about like all all the great directors now, all they do is make period pieces because they don't want to have to, it's hard to write a plot that involves smartphones sometimes Mm -hmm. into your movie. But I think this Mm -hmm. film, you know, stands out. And it's like, you have this moment where Gary Oldman turns on his iPad or whatever because the power comes back and he looks at like old pictures of his and I think it really like more than anything crystallizes this moment in time that still works today um, almost 10 years later um, so I think it, you know it's, this is a film that has aged extremely well yeah given the fact that it's almost 10 years old and 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 like that scene too it's like it you know there's that emotional resonance to it and then also there's just like the practical element of like it tells you, more about Gary Oldman than you've learned in any of the previous scenes, right? It tells you that he was in the military, and it tells you that you that he had a son who, or at least maybe multiple kids, I only remember the one. Two, yeah. Who I, we all assume died in the plague, right? Mm-hmm. And that, again, that's done wordlessly. Yeah, just based on him going through these pictures and weeping. Yeah. Um, uh, and that the scene before, uh, before that in which they... The uh, Chekhov's uh, gas station from the very beginning of the movie that get, finally gets lit up, and they play some music, uh, and you just get this like gentle little scene with all the humans, and uh, yet another, which is then tells you the dam worked, but also tells you gives you this moment between Caesar and uh, the main guy, and then he, like almost seamlessly transitions into uh, giving the uh, our lovely ape racist uh, Mr. Acevedo. Um, what's his actual name? A Carver. Um, like a moment of joy before he dies, uh, and then that transitions into the beginning of the false flag operation. Like I don't know, it's it's just it's one item into the next, using parts of the previous scene to actually make everything flow, and you don't even ask questions about the narrative. And uh, yeah, so I guess now at some point we should probably talk about the action, which like most of the second half of this movie is action. There's, I. There's so much, surprisingly much more action than I, like, remembered mm-hmm. in this movie, oddly enough. Because I, I, I thought it was only, like, the movie was, like, uh, that one night was, like, all the rest of the action. But it actually, like, goes on for, like, a while. It actually goes on, and there's, like, a sort of calm before the storm, like, interlude, and then there's more action. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think the action's very well done. Like, I feel like it might be common for a movie like this where smart academic people like us say like oh the first half was really well done you know dramatic a lot of political negotiations that kind of sci-fi feel and then it's like oh and then it just becomes you know an action movie after that but i think the action is really well done it kept me engaged because i actually like really like cared about the characters and stuff and like seeing where it was going and it kept it interesting like you know you see koba like he goes through a complete arc where he's like he's like genuinely loyal to caesar then he like tries to assassinate caesar and then it's like you see him like he starts killing apes it's like there's a very slow falling of the dominoes there that kept Mm -hmm. the uh, second half of the movie as interesting as the first half in my opinion yeah i would agree and like i said it's not action that feels like it's meant to be thrilling right it's it's terrifying it's like and it's funny because it it 
it begins with you know that like the apes are charging at sort of the 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 city gates on horses then you have mm-hmm. all the humans kind of on the barricades you know uh arming themselves and then like and you have like the apes like really determined to you know take over kill some humans and then the shooting starts and so many of them look like panicked and distressed like it, it's not not everyone is kind of like steely-eyed and determined there's a lot of like fear and in, in, mm-hmm. in the eyes of, the, of of everybody involved and like i said it's it's like it's it's kind of horrifying like it's a little hard to watch it in, in certain respects um i think maybe because i'm just an animal lover and i don't like seeing animals get hurt but also just because you know like i said it, it's a movie that really and i'm stealing this from a podcast i listened to this again like when the movie came out it's like it actually contemplates what it's like to be behind the barrel of a gun like it it, it adds actual weight to the act of taking someone's life and um which is not something you get like in a lot of big budget action movies and I think as opposed to in the big budget action movies where like, well, plan A is diplomacy, but plan B, like, and like, uh, this is like, oh no, this is a failure of diplomacy. And the one shot I really remember too from watching Brand was like the POV shot on the like the tank turret. Um, what uh. what did we, and it's funny because it's like, I actually do think that's actually like for me it doesn't work very well. I think it just kind of is weird and changes the perspective in a way that I don't think is very helpful. Like, it's, it didn't ruin the mood for me, but I was just like, ah, this is, like, an interesting idea that, did, that didn't pan out. Did you guys have any opinion about that? The one that really stood out to me was uh, when the... That, that initial attack, and there's, like, a couple guys that go under the Humvee. One guy gets, like, pulled out, and they just turn around and shot fear on these guys' faces the apes, ro- like, roll by. That that one's that stood out to me. I, I didn't notice the, the tank one as much. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely remember this. It's it's kind of like a snorry cam, the way it's just stationary on the tank. Um, and then, uh, no, I, I remember that standing out to me when I saw it in the theater. I am interested sometimes to hear about, like, those shots, if, like, regular moviegoers, like, notice that, or if, like, they don't even notice it. Um, but I remember it standing out to me. I, I disagree with you, Mike. I think it was very well done. I mean, it definitely stands out to me as, like, oh, they're doing like a you know tech specific technique here but i i thought it was well done yeah. um because at that point it's honestly like i want you know i want the humans to succeed over kova because he has engineered this horrible plot and it's like they come in in a tank and it's like yes they're there in a <laughs> tank and then it just it all completely uh flips on them where it's like oh no <laughs> now they the apes have a tank and they burst through the wall <laughs> I, I think that's fair. Uh, yeah, I it's like I said, it's like it's not like I didn't hate it. I was just like, oh, this like doesn't work for me. I think part of it's just like it was the problem I had with uh, the movie nineteen seventeen as well, where I'm just like, it just kind of feels like a video game to me at certain points, um, like that that kind of a perspective. But no, mm-hmm. I, like yeah, definitely like a very interesting. And then, like what you said about kind of the tank and the triumph that turns into calamity, I think is, is a really good point. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about in the second half, but in terms of keeping our discussion at a reasonable length, um, maybe we should skip ahead to sort of the ending confrontation and then the wrap-up of the movie. Did you guys feel satisfied in, by the... Because uh, it, it ends up sort of being a... Um, there's like two endings in terms of the action going on, where it's Koba's fight with Caesar on the top of the tower, and you also have Jason Clark on the bottom with Gary Oldman and the guys and the uh, dynamite. Did you did you guys like this uh, sequence? Yeah, I, I thought it was good, especially in terms of, like, that so often when you have two sides in a conflict that 
one side ends up ends up uh, in this type of film you build towards a single climax which means one side needs to be in a better or right circumstance and so for both of them to need to kind of change their ways uh, in order to try and seek diplomacy and to like make the system work i thought was really good yeah i it's funny because i started i wasn't able to start watching this movie till late last night so that was the point of the movie where i just started getting like tired where like I, I actually just like wanted to go to sleep so it didn't work for me as much as it did when i first saw it which is not to say it's bad but it's just like that my judgment's clouded a little bit by that but that being said i what i do think is is effective about well about that scene is that it complicates kind of the who you want to win a little bit where obviously you don't want code when you think he's bad but at the same time it's like there are like you realize there are like three to four sides of this conflict and two of them are like advocating for outright genocide <laughs> like and adding that kind of extra el- like element i think is just really interesting like this is not a movie i think with i, I won't say it's a movie without clear moral right and wrong i actually that's, that's I probably is but like it is a movie that where like the sides are not easy to kind of draw like there are like I said, there are three or four sides who want different things that you really have to consider and just throw out there again, it like just the image of like a former soldier like blowing up like a giant tower. Again, there's something a little like conspiracy minded about that. That like mm-hmm. again just feels like it resonates with our current kind of like paranoid moment. The other thing I was gonna say, what I actually did like about the scenes, I think they. And I'm curious if you guys noticed this, but like I actually think they call back to the score of one of the original movies in the fight scene between Koba and and Caesar, where there's kind of like this. Um, I don't even really know what instrument it is, but there's just oh, kind of like the swelling, not the swelling, but like that ding, 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 like oh, that kind right. of thing. <laughs> I forgot about that. It's kind of subtle, but, but yeah. I was like, Oh, like that, this is a cool way to incorporate that into the scene. Cause you know, it reminds me of the scene at the end of, uh, battle for the planet of the apes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is between Caesar and Aldo. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Aldo. Yeah. yeah. Music is very well done by the way. Giacchino um, from Lost and Up and the director of Werewolf by Night <laughs> on Disney Plus and, and the it, it was the, the the time I really noticed it starting off was uh, at the beginning of the movie where they fu- they finished the hunt successfully and like there's this big swelling crescendo it was like a, such a weird simultaneous like they're really playing this music cube. I was like, but it's working for me. Like, it's, it's, the scene's good and they're moving through it and they're showing the triumph of the apes. I thought it was really good. But I, I that, that scene, I really like it. The, the Jason Clark, Gary Oldman scene underground, just cause it's like the whole film, it's like Jason Clark's just like a regular guy. He's just like, he keeps his voice at like a certain octave. It's not like he starts out the movie like screaming, full throated, full of emotion. Like James Franco's just like whining about his Alzheimer's cure to his boss in the first movie it's much more like conventional that way and this movie it's like you get to the point where it's like he's actually holding a gun at someone who's like ostensibly the leader of his people that well that he he started like that community with they say and um it's like it really intense like you get the idea that it's like this is the first time he's actually holding a gun at a person and uh going back to like we have that scene with gary oldman where it's like oh we like gary oldman because he's like looking at those pictures and it's like gary oldman dies in that scene he blows himself up and it's like it's really it's like the movie moves so quickly that it's like you kind of don't have time to think about it but it's really like amazing that it's like all these things are happening in this scene um i just thought it was all well done it is i also love when when gary oldman picks up the gun at first it's like because there's another soldier like putting the c4 
wherever and he picks it up and this one's just like okay yeah whatever take my gun and they turn around like wait a minute he's pointed at us yeah when <laughs> jason clark picks it up yeah yeah, yeah that's what I mean. yeah <laughs> and then he's like holding the gun and he's like uh hey gary oldman and gary oldman's just like huh yeah <laughs> what oh okay i had such a strange moment uh when gary oldman i think was like sort of first introduced and you could sort of really figure out that he was going to be the leader of the the other band that's like uh, his all-black outfit. like, hmm, is that hearkening back to the third movie <laughs> with uh, what's-his-face in their all-black outfits? It's like, Governor, I'm not Governor sure. Breck. Yeah, yeah. That would have been interesting. It is funny, because, like, when I first saw this, I hadn't seen any of the Planet of the Apes movies, like, but now re-watching it for the, actually the first time since it came out in theaters. Um, I've seen them all. And it is funny how it, this film is kind of like, it's just kind of ripping off certain elements from Conquest and Battle. But it's like so much more well done. Did you notice there's like a bus scene in this movie? Oh, I didn't think mm. about that, but that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we gotta have a bus. <laughs> also, th- that I the brutality of that bus scene—they just like crushed the other apes with the bus. <laughs> well, it's, it's smart too. Yeah, it's like oh, that's clever. It's more interesting than just like shooting them all, I guess. Mm-hmm. That would have been uh, relatively rote. And even going back to like the both the realpolitik and the harkening back to those old movies of like um, when in the original movies they were following Caesar, he was such a little book nerd that like I was sort of having troubles like why like I guess he's the smartest, but like why would they be following him? And then for him to just truly be like an incredible politician in this movie um, and to to ha- take the core of those movies and do it better um i thought yeah i thought it was incredible i mean nothing nothing but praise i think so far on the podcast was there anything that you guys would have like as an actual criticism of this movie i think the female characters are kind of given uh they're given more to do than they have in many of the other movies but they're not quite there that in fact i think the best female character in all the series is going back to uh, the female ape scientist that like she was given a lot in a lot of the movies and that I was really hoping that the rapport between uh, her and her husband would sort of come out a little bit more one of them might be sort of involved in the politics a little bit more uh, that kind of stuff but I mean, that's, that's a pretty uh, that's in terms of what this movie is able to do and the, the size they still do give to some of the female characters I that's quite good yeah what, what I think is kind of funny is like and I didn't realize this until watching it this time, is that Caesar's wife, who isn't in this movie for very long, is played by Judy Greer, which just seems like a really weird casting for a vocab role. Like, I didn't know she she did that. But, yeah, no, I, I think if I have one complaint, and it's not a major one, like I said, I, the, the the Carrie Russell, Cody Smith, McPhee plot feels a little tacked on. Feels like they don't really close that loop. But also, it's not a thing where, like, it killed the momentum of the movie or anything like that. I, it's, it's a pretty minor quibble. That and I think uh, Caesar's son is a bit of a, a, like, uh, eventually he kind of learns, but like, uh, he's sort of a little too easily persuadable, I think, um, uh, that I I wish there would have been a little bit more, like, uh, push and pull with the the beginning. And I I guess he was always sort of in in agreement with Koba on a lot of the fear of the humans, uh, which makes some sense. Um, but that that sort of uh, that's just a nitpick but that's a deep one well I think we've uh, covered it 
Um, so yeah, I think I think we're all like, if you haven't seen this movie, stop what you're doing right now and check it out. Pull over to the side of the road, <laughs> put it on your iPod, um, watch it on YouTube for free. Um, yeah, so I, I guess we're done here today. Um, but yeah. The discussion can go on if you send us an email. Mike, how do people send us an email? Email us at contact at thepostwriter.com or I don't know if Twitter still works. I don't know, you know, <laughs> who knows. By the time this episode comes out, it, it could have all collapsed and we're all on threads now. But um, uh, DM us at Twitter, add us on Twitter, do whatever. Um, and then if you're just looking for me, if you're the only one I have a problem with or the only one you like, <laughs> um, then you can find me on Twitter at Elmovito or Letterboxd at Amerimite. If, if you'd like to, uh, uh, either on there or on Instagram, at LochoBro. Um, yeah. I'm on Twitter, too, at the Lewis Ryan. It still works for me on my phone. Um, so there you go. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. it, of course, you can find this podcast anywhere you can find podcasts. Like, rate, subscribe. Five stars, of course. And just check out postwriter.com for lots of other related and unrelated but still very good content. Um, yep, yeah, so next time we're wrapping it all up. It's the end end of an era. Um, we were talking about the last to-be-released film currently at this moment in time, War for the Planet of the Apes. It's going to be a heck of a ride, so I hope you'll tune in for our big epic conclusion. Um, so that's it. See you next time, everybody. Adios. I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com.